a cliche is a dream come true, but it was. I cried. Um, I remember looking at my parents and knowing that it wasn't just for me, it was for them as well. Standing on the podium at the London Paralympics, Kelly Cartwright was having a moment. As a girl from Geelong, Victoria, she'd gone from losing her leg to a rare and aggressive form of cancer at 15 to winning gold and setting a world record in long jump. I was proud, really proud of myself to be standing up there because I set this goal out, I put in the work and I deserved it. And I think that that was just an incredible feeling. I'm author and presenter Marley Silver. And in this mini-series, Game Changers, we'll hear stories from elite Australian athletes, women at the top of their game. Growing up, Kelly Cartwright's family took sport pretty seriously. And as a 10-year-old, Kelly dreamt about playing netball for Australia. But everything changed when she received a heartbreaking diagnosis. I actually suffered from a pain in my knee for about two years, so from about the age of 13 to 15, and I kept pushing through because I did love the sport, and the doctors did keep telling me that it was growing pains, it was from sport, I strapped it. I went to physios, doctors, you name it until I actually had to give up netball. And that was pretty hard for me because that was sort of my outlet and something that I enjoyed every week. And I decided to seek some more medical help. And after deciding to get a scan done, the doctor saw what would have been probably the size of a small apricot inside my kneecap and told me to leave it, that it was just a cyst and it would go away. Or I could get minor surgery and have two weeks off school. And I did love sport, but I didn't love school. So that sounded like the best option for me was to have a bit of a holiday from school. And I'm here today because of it, because I chose to go and have that operation. That was when they found that it wasn't a cyst. It was a very rare form of cancer called synovial sarcoma. And, you know, being so young, hearing that news, that must be, I don't even know how you would begin to comprehend it. What did it feel like to hear that? And how did you wrap your head around it? Yeah, look, I I kind of think about it now as an adult and as a mum, hearing cancer for me, it seems worse now at this age because I know how how common cancers are and how deathly they can be. But of course, at the age of 15, I didn't know a lot about it, but I did know you die. So that was the thing that was going through my mind. Am I going to die? And I kept asking the doctor who told me and my parents were in the room. And, you know, dad was in a zone of just asking this poor doctor a million questions and he couldn't answer them because he'd never seen that type of cancer. And my mum was a mess. So like that was hard looking at them for strength, but they were their weakest and it was heartbreaking to watch them. And so, yeah, look, just am I going to die was running through my mind just constantly. So that was really tough. What can you remember about that week of your diagnosis? I can remember quite a bit actually, because I was diagnosed um, from the doctor in my town and he told me to go to a surgeon who dealt with cases like mine and that was where I was actually faced with the most difficult decision and that was to have my leg amputated four inches above my knee or to try and go in and remove the cancer and keep my knee. And he gave me that decision the next day and I, I had to go home and have three days to think about it. And in those three days, I had scans from head to toe because they weren't sure if the cancer had spread anyway. And I remember looking at the doctor the day that he gave me that decision and said, I'm not getting my leg amputated. If I die, I die. I'd rather die than live a life with one leg. And I walked out of the doctor's room and I had a boyfriend, I had friends, you know, we were thinking about parties. And that's how I felt at the time. And I went home and got on Dr. Google like my dad did too, which is not a great idea, but I started to realize how bad my cancer was. And 
just chemotherapy doesn't work. There's no cure for my cancer, obviously, at all. And then I found out the cancer hadn't spread. So it just, my mind went from, this is the worst thing in the world. I'm not going to get my leg amputated to, okay, I have a second chance at life here. If I get rid of my leg, I could potentially be cancer-free for the rest of my life. And looking back now, thinking about how a 15-year-old thought like that is pretty mind-blowing, but you kind of grow up very quickly. And, you know, I realized that I wanted to live and I saw lots of kids at the children's hospital in the oncology ward who will never get to go home. And I was potentially going to be cancer-free and going home. So it made me start to think about how lucky I was. That's truly incredible. I actually have goosebumps just hearing the way you're (laughs) talking about your mindset essentially shift into survival mode. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. And a lot of people ask, and I know it's probably in lots of different circumstances of how do you get through that? How do you do it? But you really don't know what you're capable of until you're thrown into a situation like that or how your mind and your body will respond. My eyes were open to what could really happen to you and what was going on in the world, in in the world of cancer, in the world of people not surviving. So you start to, you know, be thankful in a way. And yes, I'm losing my leg, but I'm, I'm keeping my life. So it's, it's, you shift your mindset on, on focusing on some positives rather than all the negatives. After making the incredibly tough decision to amputate her leg, Kelly says it took a good couple of years to come to terms with her new reality. Going back to school was hard. Being the odd one out, it was, I just wanted just to fit in and like, you know, not stick out like a sore thumb. I wore my brother's school pants on 40 degree days once I learned how to walk again. I just wanted to be like everybody. And it was funny because I would be like that at school, but I would be so comfortable with going down the beach on my crutches and having my stump out. It was just sort of different situations where I wanted to blend in and other situations where I thought, you know what, this is it. This is my stump. This is my leg. And this is how I've got to live my life. And I think I put it down to having my friends as well not treat me any differently than what they did before. And then I just had little goals that I'd set along my along the way that were goals that I had before I lost my legs so to keep some normality in my life. When did you get fitted for a prosthetic leg and what was that like? Yeah, I thought, to be honest, when I lost my leg, I'd walk out of hospital in two weeks with the prosthetic. That's definitely <laughs> not the case. I've just had major surgery. So I had to go home and have a good two to three months of rehab, getting better and getting my I'd had my major bone in my body cut and lots of things going on down there. So it took a long time for my stump to heal. And probably around two to three months, um, I got fitted for my first leg. And that was so painful. I remember just thinking, I'm never going to be able to put this on and wear it all day. It's never going to be a part of my body week after week. And then all of a sudden, I think like a lot of things, just when you think it's never going to happen, it happened. And it took about a month of painstaking physio, learning to walk, learning not to fall over, getting strong again walking without crutches before I was up and back at school and being independent again. And it was really tough. I have a leg now that's a lot more high tech than what I got fitted with back in the day. And I also had a foam cover because I wanted it to look somewhat real. And now I just have a robotic leg and don't have a cover on it, don't cover it up at all. So it's changed a lot since then. When Kelly turned 16, she went to her dad with a challenge. She wanted to dance at her debutante ball, but just months after losing her leg, she was still only learning to walk. The debutante ball in Victoria is something that I think all of us girls have been talking about for the three or four years leading up to it, getting that white dress, getting your partner. We'd all picked our partners though, of course, in the years leading up. <laughs> um, get our hair and makeup done. And I didn't even think twice about it, to be honest. I knew I wanted to do my deb. 
and I asked my dev partner if he would still want to be my dev partner and he said of course I would and you know that gave me confidence too and I went along to dev practice well I was I was probably only wearing my leg an hour a day max so I'd uh, sometimes I'd have to sit on the sideline and watch them do dancing and really start to memorize it and then yeah I came out and did my dev I didn't do all the dancing but I tried and I curtsied and it was incredible it was it was the first time that I'd you know set a goal for myself and a goal that I had before I lost my leg. I think that was what was really important, not just a new goal. And yeah, my dad turned to me and said, you know, Kelly, you've done this. You can you can really do anything you want. And it doesn't seem like a big deal, but it was at the time. And that was really when things started to go. I started to say, yeah, you know what? I can, I can do what I want to do. I can put, if I put my mind to it. And it showed as well that, yes, I didn't waltz and do all the dances that everyone did, but I found my own way of doing things. And I think that's really important to tell people is, I get asked a lot of people going through the same situation, but what about if I can't do this or I can't do that? And you can pretty much do everything. You just have to find a way. It may take you a bit longer. It may be a bit more awkward, but you find your own way to do it. And I think, yeah, that that proved that to me. Would you say that was a pretty big milestone in regaining that sense of who you are or, or even like the new you who you were becoming? Yeah, I definitely think it was a huge milestone. It was straight after that when I I said, okay, now I want to I want to run again or I want to play sport again. So it was it was just a snowball effect from realizing that not only that I did it, but like I said, it's okay. Yeah, I didn't do great, but I was in front of 300, 400 people, and I found my own way to do it and built that confidence to be like, well, this is what I got to deal with for the rest of my life. If I look a little bit funny, then so be it. So it really helped me build that confidence back. So at this point, Kelly could walk, she could dance, and she's really finding herself again. Next on the agenda was learning how to run. Dad's always been very, I won't say pushy when it comes to sport, but maybe. (laughs) But he's one of those dads on the sideline that are egging you on, but also my number one fan. And when we found out about running, so I wanted to learn how to run just for PE at school, just for everyday life, not necessarily to represent Australia. And we had this walking leg. It was a basic door hinge of a walking leg. So I told my leg maker and my physio and we sort of knuckled down and thought about it for a bit. But dad and I just decided to one day draw some lines on the front of our house in our massive driveway. And he tried to teach me how to run. And it it, it was the best I could have run on that leg, but he did it. And we had many fights, many, many fights. Many times I threw my leg at him and many times I wanted to give up. But he's the reason that I really started running because of that day that he, he taught me and gave me resilience. Yeah. I have a dad like that too. So I can <laughs> definitely relate to the, you know, on the sideline and, and making you get out there when you, you know, fall down and get back up again, but yeah. it can have such a positive response. So yeah. after that, and after working on it for, for some time, you were able to get your first set of running blades and they're very, very expensive. Can you tell us the story how you ended up being able to afford those? I actually was very lucky that I um well I said in year ten before I lost my leg that I wanted to do PE for year eleven and year twelve. I didn't know that I'd be losing my leg in the future. Um, so I sat on the sideline. I didn't include myself, and that was how I felt at the time. But also, I just didn't know how to include myself in these games on my walking leg. It wasn't. I wouldn't be very competitive. So my teacher gave me a flyer to a Paralympic talent search and told me to go along. And I already knew that I wanted to run. Then I knew that I wanted to get better at sprinting or somewhat running on an athletics track and that's when I went along and I actually have to say that when I grew up I thought the Paralympics was just for wheelchair racing because we didn't have anyone wheeling the TV in um, at lunchtime to watch 
any Paralympians. We were watching Kieran Perkins in the Olympics. We didn't watch any Paralympics growing up. So for me, I was like, oh, I don't know about this. And when I went there, there was people who were vision impaired. Someone had one arm, someone had one leg, someone was cerebral palsy, you name it. And they were all representing Australia. And I just thought this is actually incredible that these all these different kinds of disabilities have this opportunity to be the best in the world and to represent their country. And that's when I found out that if I wanted to represent my country, A, it takes a lot of training, but B, you need a running leg and that it costs $20,000. So I went back to school and told my friends and, and, and the whole of Geelong, actually a small town, and they put on a fundraiser and raised $20,000 for me to purchase my first running blade. So I would not be here today without that. And I'm very lucky that I lived in Geelong in a small town because I feel like that's when they really put their hands in their pockets and support their locals. Yeah, that's beautiful to have a whole community behind you along this, the whole process of the journey. How did your body feel in that moment when you were Mm. going through that? Yeah, well, firstly, I acted like I really wanted to go down the athletics track. But when I actually got down there, I I think it took me a week to get out of the car because I was so nervous. There wasn't a group of one-legged runners I could go join. I had to be with the able-bodied and that just freaked me out because I didn't want people to stare at me. But my my prosthetist at the time, and I found an amazing coach who'd never coached anyone with one leg but was willing to do whatever it took, they literally held my hand on the athletics track because it was so weird to run on this blade. It was so strange to have this foreign object that was now meant to be part of my body to help me run. So it took me a good couple of months to even run by myself and let go of their hands and then start to really understand what the blade did for me. And and then, it, you know, it just became second nature, but it was tough. And I said, mentioned before that I was wearing my brother's school pants when I should have been wearing a school dress, but sport is the reason that I started to wear shorts again, because I had to on the track. I had to, when I changed my leg over and it just made me build that confidence back as well. So I have sport to thank for that. And really gaining that that confidence when it came to wearing my leg out and, and being the different one. So you learnt to walk again and then to run and you also learnt how to feel more comfortable in your skin again, In even though it looked a bit different. Yeah. And you mentioned being inspired when you got to meet some Paralympians, but what was the turning point when you thought, this is what I want to pursue? Yeah. Well, when I went to the talent search, they are obviously looking for talent to represent Australia at a Paralympic Games. So it would have been six years before the London Paralympic Games. So they were scoping me for London, thinking if we train you up for six years, we'll hopefully see you in London. And me being me was like, oh, I want to go to Beijing in two years (laughs) and I want to represent Australia. Then I still really hadn't wrapped my head around the whole elite athlete thing or known what it was like. But I went back and I trained and you know, I had London in in my mind thinking if I have this goal, then this is going to give me something to look forward to. But I scraped through the wild card to Beijing and went along as the slowest, smallest person there (laughs) in my category. And I ran and I came last and met some incredible people. And I sat in the stadium one night and one of my friends got a gold medal and I heard the national anthem. And I said, that's it. The next four years, I'm going to come back and I'm going to be a Paralympian with a gold medal. And that was the, a turning point for me. And that's when I moved away from my family from Geelong up to Melbourne to the, the Institute of Sport there and started to train seven days a week and really focus on those London games. So that was sort of, even though I, I wanted to be in Beijing, um, I didn't know how hungry I'd be for a, a gold medal or, you know, any medal at the Paralympics or Olympics is incredible. After years of training at an elite level and coming sixth in the 100-metre sprint at the Beijing Paralympics, Kelly suffered a massive physical setback. And Kelly wasn't just training for the 100-metre event anymore. She was competing in long jump too. 
I moved up to Melbourne. I trained really hard for about a year with a new coach, new training regime, and just logged myself. And I got to the point where I couldn't even walk after a year of doing that. And by by that, I mean, I couldn't put my leg on. My stump was so sore. The impact that you put through your body, three times your body weight when you're running, I was putting that through this femur that had been cut. And um, it was so painful. And I went to doctor and surgeons. I went back to my old surgeon and they just said, yeah, you just got to give up running. It's not ideal for an amputee. And it's not, it's not, but that was not an option for me. And so I just... I sat back and for about six months, I just had to give up running and did not know what I was going to do because I knew I needed and wanted to be in London. So I found a, a surgeon in, in Sydney who had a look at me. I flew up to Sydney and he did a reamputation of my stump. So he cut off about a centimetre, clean slate. It was a lot of bone damage, bone spurs, tissue damage, scar tissue that he needed to just get rid of and start again. And yeah, it helped. And, you know, I never had that pain again, touch wood and came back a week after my surgery on the plane and ended up in the gym because I needed to be at the world champs in six months. <laughs> it helped. It was a huge process and it was really hard. Any setback for an athlete and one as major as that was really hard because I was training with someone in my class at the time as well and she was breaking records and um, I had to come back and pretty much start from scratch. But my aim was to get in front of her and then get better and get to the London Games. And that plan paid off. In 2008, Kelly went to the World Championships and scored a gold medal in the 100-metre sprint. And the next year, she backed it up with another win in that same event. And she didn't stop there. During all of this, Kelly decided to, you know, just casually summit Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania. Looking back on it now, it's like I did not know what Kilimanjaro was when I said yes, and that is probably was a blessing in disguise, being 19 or 20 and saying yes to that. I just saw it as a challenge and raising money for children's hospital as well as a bonus, Um, but just a huge challenge for me and something to look forward to when I couldn't run at the time. So it was the hardest thing I've ever done mentally and physically, but also the best thing I did because there's a lot of people on that mountain with two legs that I saw give up. And, you know, I had moments where I nearly did, but I just knew that I couldn't because I would regret it for the rest of my life. And I'm just pretty proud that I was able to get through it with all, all the challenges that come along with being an above knee amputee walking uphill, so that's pretty pretty hard. In 2012, Kelly hit the pinnacle of her running career. She's 24 at the London Paralympics and wins gold in the long jump and silver in the 100-metre sprint. It was incredible to be at those games, be at any games, but I went along to Beijing just as a newbie on the block really really like nervous but obviously not with the weight of having to you know win a gold medal on my shoulder whereas London I was going in there to potentially win and be the best so it was a different ball game for me and I was a lot stronger and fitter and been around the block a few times then so it was amazing to be in a stadium with you know 80 90,000 people my parents were there somewhere and to win that gold medal and break a world record in the long jump it was a relief, a massive relief, because it was all you'd pictured in your mind and anything can go wrong, especially in, in athletics and different sports. So sharing that moment with my coach as well was incredible and worth all the ups and downs. And it was worth the operations and the injuries and the times I said no to going out with friends. You know, I, I wanted to go there and win two gold medals, but I knew that it might be a bit impossible with one of the girls that was running. And I, I ran a personal best in the 100 and came home with a silver. So, I mean, I couldn't ask for a better games. 
I did win gold and that's the pinnacle of the sport. But for me, I was really only just beginning to be at the top of my sport. I'd only started to be in the top three in the last year leading up to the game. So I thought, yeah, this is the start of it. Then I'm going to go to Rio and, and so forth. And London Paralympic Games was my last international competition for athletics. And that was just not on my cards. That was not what I was aiming for. And I came back and had a little bit of a party, did all the things that I'd missed. And then I missed training. So I tried to come back and unfortunately my ankle just sort of broke down and gave way. And I had surgery. I had lots of things to try and fix it. The cartilage damage, the arthritis damage. I couldn't even put my foot on the ground in the morning. I tried to come back and tried to run many times and maybe I could have, but mentally it just got to me and I started to really not like the sport that I'd loved because I could not be the best and I didn't enjoy it. And yeah, it really just put a spanner in the in the works because I just, I didn't picture myself there. I thought I would come back and be better and better and better. And unfortunately that wasn't to be. And like I said before, it was it's 100% to do with being an amputee and an athlete and being naive and hopping around too much and wearing and tearing my only ankle. So yeah, it, it definitely wasn't where I imagined myself. And as that was kind of unfolding and, and the picture of your professional international running career maybe being over, what was your biggest fear in not being able to run competitively anymore? It sounds silly. Like obviously I loved it and wanted to compete and wanted to be the best I could be. But my biggest fear was people not liking me anymore. Even my parents, I remember I didn't want to tell them because I thought, well, they're going to be so disappointed. They want me to run. They want me to keep going and they're not going to love me anymore because I'm Kelly the runner to them. And that was really hard. I I stuck to that mindset for so long that people only knew me and appreciated me because of my sport. What would I do now? Who will I be? And I think that's why I hung on for so long afterwards of even after the operation, I tried again and kept trying, but I never was going to be the best because I wasn't putting 100% into it every time I tried as well. So I struggled with that identity of what now, who's going to want to be in my corner. So Kelly stepped away from the track. And during that time, she met her partner, Ryan, and they had two boys, Max and Charlie. She says motherhood has brought its own challenges. If I thought sport was hard, being a mum is so much harder and really woke me up to the reality of things. And I, I knew I wanted to come back to sport eventually. I never retired from athletics. I didn't know in my mind if I, that would ever be possible. But I knew I wanted to give something a go. And I've always been in the gym and fit. So after having Max, I decided to look at powerlifting, which is always, I've always loved lifting weights. It sounds like it's a bit weird for me to go there, but it's just sort of made sense. And even though I struggled a lot with Max and realizing that my life changed dramatically and my partners didn't because I was at home, he was still working, you know, everything sort of for me had to be turned upside down. And I was a selfish athlete before. So I, you know, traveling, eating, doing what I wanted to, oh, hang on a minute, this person rules my life. I've got to stay home now and look after him first and foremost. But it made me come back into sport with a healthier mindset to realize that sport is not everything. My, my family will always come first anyway, but, you know, it made me have a healthy relationship with sport and life and family and just really enjoy it this time, not get too, you know, narrow-minded in that aspect. Powerlifting is, is definitely still a sport that has a big impact on your body. Yeah. How was that different and was your ankle injury still something that um, you have to think about while you're doing it or is it the way that you're participating in it now less impactful? Yeah, definitely. So para powerlifting is just bench press and you're just lying on a bench. It sounds really boring but it's actually really fun. I've always loved bench. So you don't do the squats and the deadlifts. You just do one one lift. So yes, my my ankle was not being used at all. So it made total sense for me to do that. And 
I, I loved it. And it's, it's a different ball game. It's not a stadium. You're on stage. It's terrifying. It's, you know, there's so many rules in it. So it was just, it was really hard to wrap my head around and takes years and years and years to be a, an incredible para power lifter. And, um, you know, I, I did well in Australia, but I would never, I was never up at the benchmark with these, these the amazing lifters from all over the world. But I made Commonwealth Games in 2018 and it was in Australia. So that was a, one off my bucket list and something that I loved loved to do. So, yeah, that was incredible. Do you find it empowering to do that kind of stuff, you know, especially as a woman, uh, lifting those big weights, sometimes bigger than the boys? Yeah, I do. I really do. I, I'd i be lying if I said I wasn't in the gym trying to be the best all the time. That's just who I am and what I do. And always looking at, you know, who's lifting that, I'm going to go try and lift a little bit more. But yeah, being strong and fit for me is so empowering, especially being an amputee. Walking is hard some days. So if I'm strong and fit in other ways, uh, I know my walking and being, you know, being around the kids and just, I love the feeling of, of going to the gym and pushing my body to its max and beyond. I think that's really empowering. And yeah, I'd have to say that I'm probably the only one out of my friends that wants big muscles and a six pack because it's, it's not the norm for girls, but that's, I love it. That's my thing. And I think that every woman should embrace whatever they want their body to look like and be okay with it. So yeah, I find, I find six packs and muscles on me empowering. (laughs) Yeah. Since the early days of when you lost your leg to now, do you think that we as a society in Australia are getting better with how we interact with people with disabilities or even the coverage of these most recent Paralympic Games? Do you think it's growing and in a positive way? Oh, definitely. It's changed dramatically since I lost my leg and even went to Beijing to, to the Games now, the coverage like you mentioned and yeah, being in photo shoots, I think I did a photo shoot 10 years ago and I I was really the only one back then and now you've just got to turn the TV on and you can see Dylan Alcott or, you know, other people doing promotional ads and it, it is, it's got, it's changed a lot. But what I think needs to change even more is that, yes, we had the Paralympics on TV, but not every disabled person wants to be an athlete or should have to be an athlete or a Paralympian. And we've got this really high pedestal for them, I think, and we need to bring awareness to disabled people, not just when the Paralympics is on not just when they're doing sport because there's a lot of disabled people out there living their lives doing incredible things or just being a normal person and I think we need to normalize that and not just you know throw light on the people that are in sport because that's only a minority and a very hard one to do is is to be an elite athlete so I think we need to have conversations with I, I was saying the other day a lady came up to me and said that how brave I was and that was just because I was out of the shops and <laughs> you know I was with my 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 two-year-old at the time and she meant so well and I, I I really hate when people get angry at people like that because they're meaning well but also they're just uneducated and they have no idea they haven't been around disabled people like I have you know I've got that privilege of being around disabled people not everybody has so we need to not get angry at those situations but start conversations with children and kids before they get to adulthood and they know how to speak to people they know how to interact with disabled people and that you know, my kids and younger kids will grow up in a more inclusive and diverse world because, yeah, I just think that it's so important to start conversations with people and not necessarily get angry or have a go at them in a negative way because we just all need to learn. What I love about your story is the way, you know, there's so many moments in your life where you've used a setback to propel your life forward and create new challenges for yourself or, or, you know, take on new opportunities Reflecting on your career so far, what has been your biggest challenge that you've had to overcome? Oh, um, look, 
It's hard to answer that in one question because I think in everybody's life, maybe each year or each couple of years, there's just new things that you've got to navigate your way through. And for me with sport, that was setbacks and um, injuries. And then having kids was mentally, it was different for me and struggled to find my identity with that. And then just now it's sort of this COVID business and, and navigating the world in in different ways of, of how to keep your business alive, how to keep making money, how to stay motivated. Um, one of the things that's probably the most hardest that I've had to deal with recently is my mental health. I really struggled in the last year with my mental health and I never had before. I never thought I had, and I thought, why why now? I've never had it. And I thought that was just, you wouldn't get it if you never had it or why. There was not one pivotal thing that's changed in me other than COVID. But again, I think that just highlighted the fact that I had mental health problems, not the fact that I got it from that. So it's definitely my biggest hurdle now is overcoming that. Mm. You know, going back to when you were talking about what it was like um, facing your cancer diagnosis, obviously um, fear was a big part of that. But now mm. what is your relationship with fear like? You know, you were speaking about how you're embarking on the new journey of, of looking after your mental health. And I imagine that, you know, I know I've been scared when I've had to think about my own mental health and things like that. What does your relationship with fear look like now? Yeah, look, it's it's funny. I think when I get older, you get more scared. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how I felt. I used to just take this things head on when I was younger. I used to take my scans coming up every month to see if the cancer returned head on. Um, And now I just think maybe it's a combination of having children and, you know, sitting back and thinking about things a lot more because we've got more time on our hands. But my biggest fear was, A, I'm going on medication for antidepressants. And and that was huge for me because I didn't want to. I thought I had a bit of a stigma around it. I'm putting my hand up and saying, hey, maybe I do need that. And it was the best thing I did. Um, I was in a really dark place about six months ago and speaking to my doctor and now I see a psychologist was the best thing that I've ever done. And don't get me wrong, I saw a sports psychologist my whole athlete career, but I've never seen a psychologist for my mental health, not even after losing my leg. So when I sort of got in this moment where I was in a dark place and thought I need to speak to someone, back of my mind was like, no, you don't, you're Kelly, you're, you've, you're fine. You've never needed to speak to someone before. You'll, you'll get through it. And I kept saying to the psychologist, I don't understand why I'm so depressed or down. And she kept saying, it doesn't discriminate. It doesn't matter who you are, you know, what you're doing, it can creep up on you. And I think, yeah, being in lockdowns and and the world at the moment, and it just sort of reiterated the fact that I need to speak to someone. I need to get on top of this. And it was difficult, but it was the best thing I've done. What's your message to people who might be feeling a bit defeated or might be in that same dark place you found yourself in, say, six months ago, but also want to turn things around? Yeah, I think talk to somebody straight away. I talked to my partner. Obviously, he's not a psychologist or a doctor, and I was doing his head in, to be honest, because I just kept looking for him for answers, and he didn't didn't have the answers. And, yes, it's great to, to voice that you're going through something because he encouraged me to go and speak to somebody who can actually help me. And when I told the doctor, like, I was so shocked with how she sat back and just really listened to my problems. She wasn't a psychologist, but how she listened to my problems. And then I got a mental health plan and she put me onto a a psychologist who now I see on the phone at the moment, but it's just someone to chat to and tell someone else how crazy you feel or the thoughts that you have um, that you think aren't normal because everybody has thoughts. Everybody's going through something. Because I think we can get stuck with thinking that other people can solve our problems when professionals are there for a reason. And I do motivational speaking for a living and I always get asked about certain circumstances someone might be going through and how to get over that. 
And I, as much as I'm there, I can only give you my advice on what helped me. But I keep saying to them, you need to speak to a professional because that would dig you out of that hole. And I never thought I would be on antidepressants. And it's not forever. I've already, I know that. It's just, it's just helping me with, with what I need right now. And it seriously changed me dramatically. And I'm not saying that they're for everybody, but that's what I needed. And I had, I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't spoke to a professional. So yeah, please just reach out and you're never, ever alone. Kelly almost made a comeback at the Tokyo Paralympic Games, but quarantine restrictions and lack of sponsorship meant she was forced to pull the pin. But she reckons she's still got another World Championships under her belt. And with her record of overcoming obstacles, it's safe to say we should keep an eye on this space. In the next episode of this mini-series, Game Changers, we're speaking with Jess Rich. Fear is always present and I'll be shocked if someone says that it isn't. I'm Marley Silva, your host, and this is Beyond the Ordinary, a Red Bull podcast. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can discover more about Game Changers at redbull.com forward slash Game Changers. Game Changers.